Welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast uh, as we continue our trek through January comics, reviewing the very best of what came out. I mean, we always like to think of this as a positive podcast. We don't like to focus on titles we didn't enjoy. There's enough negativity in the world. We just focus on the good stuff. So we're going to be going through honourable mentions, picks of the week and everything in between for the 19th of January. So your host is always Alan from Coffee and Heroes, a, a comic book store in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And joined, of course, by Mr. Marvel himself, Keith, this evening as well. And how are you, sir? Hi, I'm good. Not not bad at all. I am uh, I'm gearing up for a big, long trip tomorrow. Um, I'm uh, heading from Belfast down to the other end of the island, uh, down to Cork, and then on to the very tip of the island to Kerry. Uh, so a grand total of probably about five and a half hours in the car. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm, as soon as we're done here, I will pack the car and I'll be ready to hop up in the morning and following some strong coffee, get on the road. Well, make sure to take some comics with you because I know you've been playing catch up for the last couple of months and you're <laughs> almost there. Yes, I uh, I have five issues from my, my previous week, and I have this week's pull list, which I picked up today, so I'm just going to take the whole lot. I think that sounds like a plan. So, but uh, yeah, obviously what we're going to be reviewing here are titles from uh, back in January, and we said it on the previous pod, I mean, how titles were starting to co- come out a bit more consistently, start of the year. We both had, I believe it was 24 off the top of my head. Well... Things got real this week. Uh, we jumped, I jumped anyway from 24 titles to 33 titles in total. And this is one of the most evenly split weeks I've probably ever had. And out of them all, DC's the least, which is really surprising. But uh, 33 titles total, 10 of them were DC, 11 of them were Marvel, and 12 of them were indie. What was your, uh, what was your totals? I'm uh, neck and neck with you again. Uh, I think last week I was neck and neck uh, with 24, and this week neck and neck with 33. Uh, but less evenly split. Uh, I have 14 Marvel, 13 Indy, and 6 DC. That is a big week for Marvel. I mean, I did the titles for this week. You know, we're obviously recording this in March, and the, the week, I think there was like eight new Marvel titles this week or something. And you look at this, and you had 14. That was a big week. Uh, so I'm yeah. sure there will be plenty of Marvel sprinkled through these honorable mentions. Uh, did a Marvel title make it into pick of the week, though? You'll have to listen on to find out. <laughs> so, yeah, unsurprisingly, as we kick things off with honorable mentions, the first one's Marvel, and it's from myself. And uh, the first one for me is Silver Surfer Rebirth, a brand new number one that came out this week. This is written by the classic team of Ron Mars and art by Ron Lim. And any return for the Sentinel of the Spaceways will always be welcomed by me. I mean, it's it's no secret that you know, along with Daredevil, Silver Surfer is my favorite Marvel character. You know, the the sheer imagination that surrounds the character, the harrowing backstory and subsequent servitude to Galactus, the triumphant return to freedom to explore the furthest reaches of space, helping anyone he can along the way. It's just, it's brilliant storytelling. And one of the best creative teams from Silver Surfer uh, return here, you know, to tell an all-new story set within their specific established continuity. So it's, I mean, this is very much a trick Marvel have already pulled with X-Men Legends. They're also with Ben Riley, And there's a few more upcoming series as well. So, as I say, step forward, Ron Mars and Ron Lim. I mean, when it comes to establishing everything we know about the Silver Surfer, the two Rons are, they're every bit as important to the legacy of the characters Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. 
Are you saying they do run, run? They do run, run, run. They do run, run. That's getting cut out. No, it's not. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so with this one and being a brand new number one, you know, it's, it throws you straight into the action. This is nostalgia all the way, this issue. You know, you've got Surfer helping out Jenis Vell, son of the original, you know, Captain Marvel, who Surfer, of course, knew very well personally. And he helps him. He helps Jenis Vell rescue a starship that's in trouble. And afterwards, you know, they enjoy a good chat, you know, reminiscing all the rest, only for Genesville to disappear and be replaced by his dead father. No one, including Surfer, knows what's going on, nor why they are suddenly on the planet of Aladia in the midst of a Skrull invasion. So, of course, the heroic instincts kick in and they set up to help. But the nostalgic team-up between the two is broken up by a certain mad titan who makes an appearance and uh, disposes of the original Captain Marvel. But he might actually be on the good side here, Thanos. What is going on? So, yeah, this was a great step back in time, I thought, for these characters. You know, it was big, bold, four-color action. Lots of pseudo-pretentious musings from the surfer himself and some big threats to the Marvel Universe returning. So, very much looking forward to issue two for this one. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a classic pairing. Uh, you know, both the, the team and the character. And, I mean, that... You know the the musings because you know Surfer spends so much time by himself, you know, you know, cruising through the spaceways that 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 those introspective, almost Shakespearean sort of musings were uh, were were just what made the character. You know, uh, very very. You know, he's a he's a philosopher. Yeah. You know the the uh, you know the, seeker the, the, of knowledge. The, the silver clad philosopher, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, this was I really enjoyed this. It felt classic. Reminds me, I must I must whenever I get the. The collection down the down to Belfast and into the house. I must uh, pull out all of those old Silver Surfers and fire them your way. Oh, absolutely! I would be a very grateful recipient of those. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yes, that's Silver Surfer Rebirth number one, kicking things off with a Marvel number one and following it up with a Marvel number one. Absolutely, with uh, She-Hulk number one, and I know this was one that you had in your list, and I uh, and I unceremoniously stole it uh, because I loved it like a ninja. Um, but- <laughs> but this is the first issue of She-Hulk since Charles Soule's 2014 12-issue run and famously, obviously, Dan Slott's uh, much-lauded run before that. She-Hulk has had a storied history in comics. She was the last character, actually, that Stan created at Marvel back in 1980. And uh, through her post-Secret Wars replacement of The Thing in the Fantastic Four, which is where I first met her, to her more recent Avengers membership under Jason Aaron and the great World War She-Hulk story, um, I don't know the writer, uh, Robin Rowell, uh, Rowell, uh, so well, but, uh, she does a fantastic job with Jen here and Brazilian artist, uh, Rose Antonio is an art duties and his work I've seen variously across Marvel and DC over the past 10 years or so. Um, Jen Walters, the sensational She-Hulk is no longer savage as she was in recent Avengers titles and is seeking to restore her career as a lawyer reconnect with old friends and rebuild her image which is which is timely because she's got a tv series coming out uh, as we as it's we all about know. that pr <laughs> but uh, roel focuses brilliantly on the interpersonal relationships with just the perfect amount of humor you know it was great to see for example uh you know jen moving into the apartment that she used to she used to rent off wasp uh janet van dyne the former chairperson of the avengers so all of these these cool uh these cool wee callbacks to, to, to previous times and you know there's the perfect amount of humor here it makes the book feel light and it's also compelling and accessible 
Um, it's a tone which the art complements. She-Hulk is drawn as the gorgeous giant as she is, especially if we compare to her alter ego, Jen, who just can't quite seem to get out of her own way. Brilliant first issue. You could enjoy equally not knowing anything about Shulky or you know, or, or whether or not you're a, you're a fan. I mean, I highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to where the story goes uh, after such a spot-on reintroduction. And it was almost pick of the week stuff here, I have to say. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it was, as you say, accessible, I think is the key word here. It was very light in tone. It was very clear with what it was presenting. I don't know an awful lot about She-Hulk. I mean, my last exposure to She-Hulk was through Immortal Hulk, where it was a very different character to what we see here. I did read the Charles Soule run back in the day, which I really enjoyed. Uh, but again, not a character I know an awful lot about. So to get such an accessible entry into it that, as you say, is light in tone, but, 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 but felt there was a bit of weight to it as well, which was mm, nice. You know, the, yep, the certainly yeah. the main fight she was having as well. Through it was there was a bit of weight there. You know, the 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 fact that she's so unsure of herself. There's there's a lot to unpack here, but it was four color yeah, joy. It's, it is absolutely that fight with Titania, who is a classic She Hulk villain, the the wife of Absorbing Man, and they've been they've been uh, Titania was created back in Secret Wars uh, in 1984, and and very quickly became a you know She Hulk's arch nemesis, and they're their relationship is hilarious. They're the only, you know, fighting Titania is the only time She-Hulk can let go because she knows she can't, you know, <laughs> she can't hurt her, you know. And and then you know, there's that dichotomy of 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 Jen's uh, lack of confidence, but She-Hulk's overconfidence, you know. And this, you know, that that's classic She-Hulk because that's what led, you know, Jen to remain in her She-Hulk form at all times, you know, even mm-hmm. you know in the courtroom. And all of that sort of stuff, and it kind of plays out here because she's got nothing to wear as She-Hulk. Whenever, but whenever she goes back to Wasp's apartment, all the clothes she left that are She-Hulk-sized clothes are there. So it's it's very very cool, very cool. Am I remembering correctly that that scene was written where the the closet was sort of closed, and she sort of said to herself, "Please, please, 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 please," and then opens it up and yes, yeah. yes, all, all the clothes are still. <laughs> yeah, just a really good tone to it. It was. It was nice and playful, but uh, just a lot of fun. So, yeah, yeah I thought this... I, again, as Keith rightfully said, I did put this in my honorable mentions, but he stole it from me. But, well, <laughs> that's fine, because I probably would have stolen the next one from him as we continue with the Marvel number ones. And the next one up is Devil's Reign X-Men number one. So, this is written by Jerry Dugan and art by Phil Notob. And I remember seeing this in the previews books months ago. And as soon as I saw the cover for it, I knew I'd be picking it up. It could be absolute trash inside. Wouldn't care. This cover is stunning. And of course, it wouldn't be the first time I picked up a comic just to own the cover. But the interior story more than made made up. You know, it more than matches the quality of the of the cover. So in this uh, tie-in, The Devil's Reign. So the reason I'm enjoying Devil's Reign so much and also the reason why I've enjoyed Zdarsky's run so much is because his exploration of Wilson Fisk is incredible. It's so interesting. He's so menacing, so calculating. And in this issue, Fisk is attempting to close the Krakoan Gate, which operates in New York, and has he's called in the Thunderbolts to confront the mutants who stand between them and entry. And you know, as established through X Men, Krakoa is an independent nation. You know, they can pull the diplomatic immunity card anytime they want, despite the fact the tree is smack bang in the middle of New York. And of course, Fisk is nothing if not arrogant. You know, he hates the idea of anyone getting one over on him, mutant or not. So he therefore reaches out to to Emma Frost for a tête-à-tête, hoping to uh, to gain the upper hand. And you know, I've I've been out of the loop a little bit with the main X titles. You know, I prefer to catch up by the way of trades. But 
I mean, you, you, I'll, I'll be interested to know if you agree on this, but this felt to me like the very first few issues of X-Men when Hickman first did it, you know, which dealt much more with the politics of establishing Krakoa and the way that Krakoa bends the nose of many human character, good or bad, out of joint. You know, I, I just thought this was brilliantly written. It was a very cerebral issue, you know, clear character dynamics, clear motivations, which are just framed by brilliant and your favorite thing as well clean line artwork uh from yep. phil noto as well so yeah brilliant tie in the devil's reign i thought and in fact just a great issue that actually just stands on its own two feet yep really enjoyed it i think this is a three issue series isn't it three issue yeah yep yeah no i thoroughly enjoyed it i thought it was i thought it was great as you say you know phil noto's art uh which i enjoyed thoroughly on cable uh back in the x-men again highlighting uh, emma frost here uh alongside Electra, wasn't it mm-hmm um yeah very very interesting and you know the things that the, the depths that Will, wilson fist will go to manipulate uh emma frost who herself is a master manipulator and i suppose you could say a former bad guy although she's still got her dark side to her as well oh yeah very much the white queen of the hellfire club come on <laughs> but yeah great great uh issue and i'm delighted to say that phil noto's continuing with the covers as well so yeah, that was uh, the last honorable mention for me, which was Devil's Reign, X-Men number one. So we're going to move away a little bit from uh, Marvel and over to the land of DC. So hit us up. What are we on next? True, true. We are moving to DC, but after She-Hulk and Elektra and, uh, and Emma Frost, we're sticking with the ladies uh, with Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number seven. And I am starting to feel like a broken record here. Wait, wait, wait. There's, Sup- there's, there's a Supergirl title out. They're definitely, they're definitely. I have never this, heard of this title before. Never. This is. So what's all this well, about? This will be a revelation for you. Um, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow does it again with issue seven. It's the penultimate issue of Tom King's galaxy-spanning tale, uh, and it's presented stunningly by Evelyn Bilkus. Uh, this has been consistently, month to month, the most beautiful book in the shelves at the moment, and I'm sorry it's coming to an end next issue, and I'll be looking forward to whatever the artist is on next. Um, Tom King weaves two narratives here with Ruth Ye, our, our narrator, planet side, struggling not to end the life of uh, her father's captured killer, Krem. Meanwhile, Supergirl fights an epic space battle with the space pirates and their high-tech weaponry, seeking to rescue Krem. King delivers a fantastic story in this issue. Everything from the contrasting storylines to the dialogue and the narration works and just enhances everything for us, for the reader. And there's a great sense of tension throughout and it manifests in different ways in both Rushi's conversation and confrontation with Krem and Kara's fight against the pirates. The pace is perfect and it draws you in and delivers on every element that it promises with Evely also delivering on some beautiful character and action moments that that absolutely sort of deliver in the promise that King makes. This is, this is great. This is, this it's this is Tom King's best. We really have to look back at our notes and see if we've mentioned every single issue of this. Yeah. Series. It's, because it it's definitely just feels like great. it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it just, I can't, I just can't talk about it highly enough. It's, it looks good. It feels good. The characters are, are brilliant. Supergirl has, I don't think ever been done better. You know, it's just, it's, it's, <laughs> get it well, yeah, just get it. 
Something tells me this will be a, you know, we, we, we keep talking about wanting to do like book clubs and stuff like that. It's just obviously playing catch up in the review sort of takes precedence. But I think this will definitely be a book club in the future. It's, again, we, we can't say enough good stuff about this. It's beautifully written, beautifully drawn. And again, I've said it before, Superguard is a character that normally I would have zero interest in. Mm-hmm, Absolutely mm-hmm. zero. But I know how this ends. I know how satisfyingly this ends. This is book of the year material. It is that good. Uh, so mm-hmm. so yep. keep an ear out for a future podcast that mentions Superguard Woman of Tomorrow, number eight. Uh, but for this <laughs> week, it's Superguard Woman of Tomorrow, number seven. But, but no, you were saying we were sticking with the ladies with regards to the honorable mentions. And again, we're sticking with the ladies with my next one and, and sticking with DC. So for me, the next one up is Catwoman, number 39. So this is written by Tini Howard and art by Nico Leon. So... You know, again, I've spoke about it a few times. You know, I think the current volume of Catwoman has been something special all the way through. You know, it spun out of the events of Batman 50, Selena going her own way, Joelle Jones kicked it off, and then after that, there was a defining run from Ram V. And I think it's often the most overlooked of the Gotham set titles on the racks, and therefore, this issue provides a perfect opportunity to help right that wrong. Because Teeny Howard has, has made the move to DC. She's still doing Marvel work, but has made the move to DC as well. You know, she's done some stellar runs on X titles. They're in her back pocket, and now she's picked up the baton from Ram V and, and ran with it at full speed. So this this issue was fantastic. It, it, it's both the perfect continuation of the great work laid out by the previous creators, as well as being a great starting point for new readers. So Selena Kyle is back in Gotham, and, and this first issue offers up impressive art by Nico Leon. And the always busy and brilliant Jordi Belair. It seems to me that either Chris O'Halloran or Jordi Belair colour every single book under the sun. Tamra um, Bonville is another good shout. I'm looking forward to Batman Superman World's Finest, which I'm going to read after we finish recording. <laughs> but that's a by the by. Uh, but yeah, the you know it's it's clearly going to be a noir tinge take. So of course it has my attention straight away. You know, there's a big emphasis on the Gotham underworld, the world of gangsters, and I know maybe be a heist or two along the way. I would say. Uh, for a first issue as well, it's extremely atmospheric. You know, much of the story is set in darkly lit locations. Save, of course, for the absolutely garish, bright pink of a strip club, which introduces the major players and sets up the main conflict for the story moving forward. You know, the book, it just absolutely drips with mood and visual appeal. When we last saw Selena, mostly through the Ram V run, you know, she was cleaning up alley time, but it's made clear straight away that she longs for Gotham. She's returned to a very different place with a new crew of head families running the show, and one of whom she may even have a collection, uh, a past connection to with as well. The main takeaway I had from this issue, it was an extremely confident first issue from a creative team who are clearly fans of the character, and this Catwoman fan is more than reassured. Selena's in great hands. Just get on this; it's so so good, so good. That it'll it'll fill that it'll fill that Supergirl shaped hole in your heart. Uh, so this is sort of a jumping on point very much so yeah this is it's issue 39 but as i say new creative team and they've went to great lengths to explain what happened before this and also to set out the direction they're going in and the art i can't say enough about nico leon stuff is gorgeous so yeah really really good book so yeah catwoman 39 so but it's time to finally move away from the ladies and we're over to the the manly side of the marvel universe Absolutely, with Spider-Man number 86. That's amazing, Spider-Man number 86. 
which is another really solid issue of the Spider-Man Beyond arc with Ben Reilly still under the mask, Zeb Wells at the helm, and Mike Dowling on art duties. And Mike Dowling was just recently announced for something. I can't remember what it was. Um, anyway, after his confrontation with Dr. Octopus, that's Spider-Man, not Mike Dowling, uh, Ben Reilly's faith in the Beyond Corporation has been has been shaken. Uh, and it completely shatters when he discovers the secrets on the hard drive that Octopus stole uh, and the realisation that the Beyond Corp is using him because he's malleable and easily manipulated. The knowledge is a, is a heavy blow to Ben, uh, whose you know personality is built, built on, on implanted memories uh, of, of Peter's. And as the issue focuses on his psychology session with Dr. Kafka, uh, and how understandably untrusting he is of her and it reaches back into Ben's past and the nature of his implanted memories as a clone and all the time it's ratcheting up the tension and the danger for both himself and his girlfriend Janine and uh, pushes Ben into a spiral that he might not escape from. We're now in the back half of, of the Beyond arc and while the return of our beloved Peter is assured I really hope that they don't discard Ben the way they maybe have in the past especially after all the work they've done here interesting interesting i mean i know you were chatting with steven today in the store about um amazing spidey and you're not is, is is there slight hesitancy with the arc as it moves forward or um there was there was a couple of missteps i think in the most in the most recent couple of issues but uh i mean it's it's a it's a long old arc i think uh we're at sort of chapter like 19 or 20 you know so i just totally there was just there was just some stuff that that annoyed me a wee bit over the last couple of last couple of arcs but I, i'm hoping they'll they'll pull it back and uh, and finish off with a bang interesting interesting i think the the title we were looking at the solicitations just before we started recording so you probably saw michael darling's name for jane foster and the mighty thor that was the one sir along that with was the one. torin grombeck as well yep, so yep. that's one to look out for in june but that was amazing spider-man 86 and once again shock horror we have to talk about nightwing <laughs> so, Nightwing 88, Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo, you know the drill by now. Uh, so issue 88, it's it's kind of a standalone issue, kind of a setting stuff up issue, but it's an issue that celebrates Dick's past while setting up exciting possibilities for the future. I mean, by now, you know what to expect from Taylor and Redondo's run. Heart, humour, action, gorgeous art, and as ever, they deliver in spades. So, with uh, issue 88, Dick Grayson is a target. You know, of course he is. He wants to use his newfound wealth to regenerate Bloodhaven, wipe out day-to-day criminal elements. And, of course, this rub said criminals the wrong way and therefore they'll use their considerable resources to target him. And, you know, he may be Nightwing and therefore able to protect himself when rocking the stripes. They're back on his costume, after all. Uh, But when he's in public and if he wants to protect his identity, he'll need a little help from his friends. And, luckily enough, Dick's a pretty popular guy uh, within the superhero community. And he's able to depend on some of the world's best, which all culminates in one of the biggest fist-pumping pages in recent DC history. That really does. It was just uh, chills. Uh, but yeah, what what more can we really add at this stage? You know, you may be a little bored with listening to our continuous gushing praise for Nightwing, but there's a very, very good reason for that. It is fantastic. Uh, yeah, jumping on point again as well, but I say jumping on point, but you really need 87 as well, just because of that one continuous shot, which is just yeah. phenomenal. Brilliant title, can't say enough. Yeah, I mean, we 
we, as you as you rightly say, we do. We're positive people. We talk about the things we like. Um, it's hard not to like this every every week that it's released. He's a likable chap, that Dick Grayson. Yeah, likable chap. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> You know, Bruce tried to hammer all that out of him, but that likability just shines through no matter what. Some would say the heart of the DC Universe. Some would say. Some would say, or you would say. Well, <laughs> I am some. We'll leave that up to you to say. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Nightwing 88. Yeah, if you're not on it, get on it. Just, it's, you know, there's a, there's a hardcover trade if you want to get caught up on uh, Nightwing to this point, or, you know, search out the singles there. They're not too tricky to track down, but just get on it. Otherwise, you're missing out. So that's Nightwing 88. And from that, we move to doctor strange yes absolutely it's a one shot in the uh in the, the death of doctor strange series it's the death of doctor strange x-men black knight number one uh Cy Spurrier and his semi-regular art partner bob quinn dip a toe into the the death of doctor strange pool with a one shot that while entertaining very entertaining seemed very much like an excuse to bring Cy Spurrier's current marvel project the black knight out to play uh, in particular, to develop the character of Jackie, who is Dean Whitman's daughter, who, alongside her father and following Spurrier's recent Black Knight series, is one half of the dual identity of the Black Knight. And that excuse was good enough for me to really enjoy the issue. The The mutants are very much second fiddle in this, uh, actually serving as the obstacle. And the new Black Knight is incredibly written. What makes her brilliant is that there are shades of her father and her personality but she also possesses her own voice uh, with Dean as the man of the chair offering guidance and advice. Uh, Jackie is a total hothead, galloping into battle with a heat that would make sunfire sweat. And still new to adventuring, she's also starting to be affected by the horrible curse of the Ebony Blade. And that's the reason that the, the, the two have joined as the Black Knight. They switch out. Sometimes Jackie is in the chair and, and Dean is in the armor and sometimes Dean is in the chair. Just so... They can spread the the burden of the Ebony Blade. It's definitely one for fans of Paul Cornell's Captain Britain and MI13. And it's great to see Faiza Hussein, who is the current wielder of Excalibur, get some screen time as well. Bob Quinn's art style brilliantly fits the mystical nature of the book. And the colours are absolutely stunning with the sky and almost constant fiery hellscape red. Great stuff. Love Sysbarrier. Love the Black Knight. Yeah, maybe a character I'll swing back around to at some point. Just the mention there of Captain Britain. I recently picked up a, a Captain Britain, I think it was by Alan Davis, uh, Omnibus, that I've been told oh, is among the, the very, very classic. best. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just been told it's a consistently great run that uh, managed to, to nab that. So it's it's on the Omnibus pile, which is ever-growing. But uh, you never know, I may swing around to, uh, to the Black Knight at some point. And don't forget about the conversation we had this week, you know, about, uh, about how... You- Purchasing floppy comics is how you're really helping the industry. Well, this is true. I mean, I only tend to pick up omnibuses for older stuff. I don't, mm-hmm. ha- I don't have a lot of modern omnibuses, if I think about it. Yeah, I mean, plus I more than support the single issue industry. Oh, more than support, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, no, just, I, uh, but no, it is yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I, just what Keith mentions there, it was uh, a Twitter thread from a uh, editor. At, uh, was it an editor at DC, wasn't it? And he mm. was talking about, you know, one of the most popular sort of feedback things for titles on Twitter, the creators see is, oh, I can't wait for this to hit hardback. I can't wait for this to be collected in a deluxe hardcover edition. But, you know, it won't reach that stage if the single issues don't sell well enough to justify a hardcover. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a strange business sometimes because it's, it's actually well-timed. You mentioned this now because Sice Barrier is a great example. I mean, mm-hmm. he was doing a, a stellar Hellblazer run 
wasn't selling particularly well, but they decided to cancel it before it even hit trade, where maybe trade sales may have maybe saved the title. I don't know, but but yeah, it's very very true. You know, the the floppies are always the best way to get it, and. What I always think as well at the moment, certainly, is floppies are sort of leading the way with extra material and back matter and letters pages and cutting room floor if it's Walking Dead or, you know, whatever else. So, yeah, support floppies. But, yeah, pick up the deluxe in the future as well. Yes, we are advising double dipping. Sorry, it has to be done. (laughs) And I advise that as a fan, not as a store owner, just so we're clear. But, uh, yeah, we'll move away from uh, DC and Marvel and we'll finish off with two indie honourable mentions. So, first up, we have Seven Secrets, uh, number 13, written by Tom Taylor, him again, art by Danielle Dinoculo, and from one consistently mentioned Tom Taylor title to another, uh, Seven Secrets returns to single-issue release. Uh, what I've just learned is the beginning of the end for the series, which is looking mm. to wrap up at 18. So... With this being the beginning of the final arc, you know, I think it's important to catch us up on, you know, after the brief hiatus. And of course, Tom Taylor always does his usual great job of reminding us of the stakes of the important plot points so far. And we're reminded of the fact that the fate of the world could go in three different directions and the warring sides of holders and seekers trying to decide which is best. And I think the mythology of Seven Secrets has always been great, but for me, it's the characters and relationships between them. That has always proved the most endearing and, and compelling reason to read. There's, I really like that. There's, there's always been this great central idea in Seven Secrets of loyalty. You know, is it more important to be loyal to an ideal to dedicate your life to it, or to the individual? You know, if if Casper's parents, for example, are only loyal to the ideal, then Casper wouldn't be here because mm-hmm. they developed that relationship, even though they really shouldn't have. So, so we know right from the start that characters are always going to be conflicted. So. With issue 13, we're continuing to explore the mother-son dynamic between Casper and Eva, while also seeing Amon and Kanto being reunited on the other side of the world. And, and again, it brings the question up again, what would, what would you do more for, you know, the people you love or the ideals you've lived your life by? The art, of course, continues to be stellar, you know, great character work, which is just as strong as the, the dynamic action set pieces. And this was just a great reintroduction to this world after those two uh, two story arcs, but... But yeah, I was surprised that the series was only slated to be 18 issues and maybe even a little disappointed at first. But when you take stock of it after issue 13, you know, given how high the stakes are and how personal they've become, I guess it does feel like we're kind of entering the end game as well. So yeah, we always keep trade one and two in store to, in, in, at the store at all times. You know, it's just one of the most consistently great indie comics the last decade for me. Just, just really, really great stuff. Yeah. Seven Secrets is, is great. I was a wee bit disappointed to hear that it's finishing at 18, but also excited to, to see what comes, especially with, with the reveals and the more recent issues. Yeah, damn you, Walking Dead, for showing that a ridiculously long narrative can, can be consistently engaging and excellent. <laughs> and now we're disappointed when we only get 18 issues or something. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we move then on to the last honourable mention and another image title. That is right, and it's excellent. Excellence 12, and after what seems like forever and a break that was definitely uh, quite unwelcome in such a complex story, Excellence 12 has finally landed and does so with a bang. Brandon Thomas crafts a really poignant tale of rewritten history, sacrifice and family, which expands on the broken but still hopeful relationship between uh, father and son. Um, this issue has got some some huge revelations 
that are going to make the wait for the next arc a hard one. Uh, and I'm definitely going to, I think, pull out all of those previous issues for a reread before that time. But this this is a really phenomenal run on a on an urban sorcery epic that you know focuses on the I guess the experience of people of color uh, and uh, yeah, it's just there's there's so much going on and Kerry Randolph's art is vibrant. It's clearly you know he's, he's really cleverly using using his panels and you know that that use of the panels sets a lot of the book's tone. It's I say it's just great work with a really poignant message. Um, and and right up my street, you know that that urban magic sort of sort of deal with, but with, but with a more pointed message than 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 so many other things, you know. Yeah, I mean, as you say, this was the end of the second arc, and it, it was a bit of a long wait, and it's it's something that can become commonplace in comics and can you know lead to a bit of disappointment. I mean, Doomsday Clock's always the go-to, but you know, a, a storyline like this that, as you say, is complex and lots of moving parts. It's momentum is its greatest strength so if you haven't been in the singles and you 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 missed out on those the second trade did just come out so at least you don't have that weight you can see how well the story is constructed and how well put together it is so so yeah that was excellent 12 and i think 13 is due back i want to say june there thereabouts. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. keep an eye out for that but yeah as i say you can play catch up with the uh the trades which we have in store so that is the end of the honourable mentions then for the 19th of January. We will go on to picks of the week. So, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Tom Taylor mention? Check. Nightwing mention? Check. Chip Zdarsky penned pick of the week? Check. A Batman pick of the week? That's a bingo. Yep. For me, it is Batman The Night number one, written by Chip Zdarsky and Ardenist by Carmine DJ Domenico. So, I suppose this title actually takes on more significance now because we're reviewing it late. Because, you know, since this title has come out, Chip Zdarsky has been announced as the new ongoing writer for the main Batman title. Mm-hmm. He'll be taking over at issue 125 from Joshua Williamson. And if this this book is anything to go by, we can expect another stellar run. But uh, But before we get to that point, we have this fresh look at a younger Bruce Wayne developing his skills long before taking on the mantle of the bat. So... As I mentioned, Carmine DJ Domenico is the artist on this one, having notably cut his teeth on the flash. And this is a brilliant creative team. You know, the writing is sharp, the art is satisfyingly moody and cinematic. But the thing about it is that the title feels fresh, and for me, it feels fresh for two reasons. One, this is a period of time in Bruce's life that we never really have had a definitive run on. I mean, the closest we've had is Batman Year One, Bruce developing his skills, all the rest. But this goes back even before that. You know, the second reason it feels fresh is this series has Bruce in school, you know, still trying to get to grips with the fact he will never want for anything except for the love and security of his parents. You know, he's essentially viewed by the outside world as a victim, albeit, you know, a very rich one. But, you know, that chip on young Bruce's shoulders is not going anywhere. But but in this, you know, he needs to understand, even at this age, that actions have consequences. You know, there are times you can feel he just wants to get involved in skirmishes and perceived injustices because he knows it's the right thing to do. But what makes this title interesting as well is Zdarsky adds an extra layer. You know, he takes interest not just in Bruce, but also in those around him who maybe had an impact on his life. You know, they maybe tried and failed to change his course. You know, some of these characters that were introduced to, they try to change him for the better, some for the worse. And the result is that there's this tug of war at the centre of this title, you know, for the soul of a young man who's destined for greatness, one whose outcome 
Seems far from certain though at this point, but I've brought it up before, but it's so good to see Alfred again, you know, especially during formative years of Bruce's life. You know, it's heartbreaking Alfred though in this title because he, he tries to handle Bruce in many different ways, you know, of course providing the support he needs, but at another point, Alfred actually gives him the silent treatment. You know, you can see he he wants the best for Bruce. He feels this responsibility, but he can see the dark path he's going down. And despite his best efforts and variable tactics, he knows he will not be able to dissuade him. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking to see. It's it's almost like a parent knows he's failing his child. Uh, there's also a really interesting use, I thought, of Dr. Strange and uh, Dr. Hugo Strange, I should say, just to, you know, properly... Uh, differentiate between mm-hmm. Dr. Strange. Yes, quite, quite. Uh, as, you know, he's as a therapist that Bruce talks to, you know, it's it's always fun to see a spin on a villain, I think, especially one who knows Bruce is troubled, but has no idea of the future that'll come to pass, and I think these scenes hold a great deal of tension, and they're really interesting, because you can actually see Bruce developing and sharpening his mental skills, as well as his physical skills and other parts of the issue, so, yeah, overall, I thought this was an extremely satisfying first issue. You know, the ongoing joke is that there are too many Batman titles on the shelves. And I think you even might have said this might have been one too far for you. But am I right in saying Zdarsky may have just may have just swayed you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I love that sort of I love that period of Batman's life, you know, the, which, you know, was sort of the Batman Begins sort of, you know, era. Yeah, love it. Yeah, very very cool. Seeing seeing what what was formative on 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 the the superhero he's become. Yeah, and I mean, there's even repeating motifs in the book, and you know, like Bruce being brought home from school, and and these different mm-hmm. things, different trouble he's getting into. There's repeating artistic motifs in it that I think are very clever. Yeah, and it was great as well. Now it is a five dollar book, so it's slightly up from your normal um priced book, but the flip side of that that was really positive is that it wasn't a five dollar book with. 10 pages of a backup story at the end that you don't mm-hmm. care about it was all this book so you know I, I i don't mind the extra dollar thrown on top for that because mm-hmm. it's so much better than joker where you love two-thirds of the issue and then the third you may as well just throw in the fire <laughs> <sighs> no this is a good shout good shout alan this was this was a phenomenal book very much enjoyed it so yeah so that was my pick of the week for the 19th of january batman of the night number one so as ever why don't you finish us off with your pick of the week for this week uh i'm uh i'm i'm dipping into the image book for this one um and it's a slightly different one arrowsmith behind enemy lines number one uh and this marks the the start of kurt busiek's creator own reign at image comics with uh legend carlos pacheco delivering a word that straddles the line between history and fantasy. So, sounds good to me. It's World War One, but it's a war of wizards and dragons as much as bullets and barbed wire. Um, Fletcher Arrowsmith is a young U.S. airman, uh, you know, and he's plunging back into the heat of war and finds himself behind enemy lines facing a threat that could doom the Allied powers. Um, the first issue is a comic that feels all at the same time, like sort of a throwback to a different time, but also capable of standing shoulder to shoulder with the best of today's comics. The series actually, it follows on from, from the original Arrowsmith six issue mini series, which is called so smart in their fine uniforms, which is originally published in a now difficult to obtain trade dress by DC back in 2006, but it's now set to be collected in hardcover format by image in April. 
and I'm looking forward to grabbing it because I've never read it. And after that first issue, you know, I'm absolutely sold. And and thank to Kurt, thanks to Kurt Busiek's amazing storytelling, I, I was able to jump into this world and these characters with no trouble whatsoever, not having read that 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 original series. And while Busiek is best known for his work at Marvel, for example, his four-year run on, on the Avengers, which inspired Avengers Ultron and Avengers Endgame, he penned one of my absolute favourite, Avengers Forever, alongside Carlos Pacheco as well, and teamed with the wonderful George Perez on JLA and Avengers. And, of course, he created the Thunderbolts. What else do you have to say? And then at DC, you know, he did Creature of the Night, Batman, and Superman Secret Identity. But his creator-owned work is just as creative and gripping. Most writers would usually just blend, like, two genres. But Busek, he goes for three, as Aerosmith is part war epic, part historical fiction, part fantasy. Soldiers utilize dragons to fly and load their crossbows with magic spells, but the real magic comes from from the skillful character work here. He makes Arrowsmith feel like a fully fleshed out human being, especially with a scene where he deals a, a fatal blow to a rival soldier and freezes up. And as he later states in his narration, war doesn't afford time for introspection. I also loved uh, Fletcher Arrowsmith's interactions with his troll friend Rocky and the dragon Hildy. Uh, which were just really poignant and heartwarming to read. Pacheco, as I said, he's a legend uh, with huge props from both of the big two. He illustrated the first Aerosmith series uh, and he returns to Behind Enemy Lines and immerses the reader in this sort of strange but familiar world. Aerial battles feature soldiers walking in air with magic dancing sort of around their feet and dragons perched on their shoulders or on their wrists. Uh, And uh, Rocky is is a literal mountain with moss growing on his shoulders and a moustache made of leaves. And, you know, there's a there's a, a rugged, realistic texture to the pages that, uh, that Fonteras brings with his inks. And, uh, you know, the, the, the colorist, uh, Villarubia, leans into the war aspect of the book using color art that, that sort of feels washed out and faded making it and i think that's what makes it sort of look like it's from from a a before time you know that sort of way um the lettering is really intriguing uh each character has a distinct sort of way of speaking that the prussian soldiers have harsh jagged letters while rocky the troll's speech sort of is, is is more bubbly and takes the shape of boulders and whenever spells are cast the user's speech bubble turns green with golden letters and uh and, and Arrowsmith's sort of inner narration is sort of depicted in captions that look like they're they're torn from parchment, you know, from a journal or whatever. And uh, yeah, so I just, I mean, I just love this. And I think whether or not you've read the first Arrowsmith series, which as I say, I haven't, this is a comic with just a wee bit of something for everyone. And it's definitely, definitely worth a look. Well, that is extremely positive and good to hear. I've got the first issue in my box, but I'm just surprised that you mentioned... Uh... Kurt Busiek and didn't mention his absolute magnum opus masterpiece the one and only Marvel's well you know yeah, we've talked about it ad, ad nauseum so Marvel's Watchmen if uh, uh-huh. if I may uh, be so bold yes, but quite. yeah I mean I, I love blending of genres always have so I, I'll definitely be jumping on this I've got the first issue there and as you say there is that hardcover coming out in April I've ordered quite big on it because it just looked really promising so I'll be uh, nabbing one of those for myself as well I would say yes so, sir so yeah, definitely one to look forward to. I mean, 
How often do you look at it though and say it out loud and think, did I say Aerosmith there or Aerosmith? <laughs> Aerosmith, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so what you need to do is walk this way and come to the store when it comes out. I'm sorry. I apologize. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> and if that's not an excellent line, I don't know what is. So, yep, that is Keith's pick then for the 19th of January. Arrowsmith behind enemy lines number one. So, yeah, that brings another week to a conclusion. So, as ever, hope you guys enjoyed this. Hope you uh, maybe discovered a title or two that you didn't know about before. If you didn't know about Nightwing or Seven Secrets before, you clearly haven't listened to this podcast before. But, uh, yeah, as always, anything we can help you out with in the store, whether it's advice on how to best get these titles or to source them for you directly, just get in touch and we will certainly help you out. So, again, thanks for listening and uh, we'll look forward to you hearing our dulcet tones on the podcast again sometime soon. So, cheers, guys. Have a good one. So, I've been Alan Taylor and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm a Scannison 00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.